But I tell you what, this, this time of year truly is special. And even in the pain, and I say pain, because how many of you have lived enough life that there is some kind of pain associated with this time of year as well? Have you lived long enough to have some loss? And suddenly, <laughs> what once made up a really special Christmas in your mind? Ah, there's that missing person. Or that marriage that's no longer. That house that you used to go to that's just been sold. That person who used to be full of life and maybe brought so much laughter at Christmas is no longer there or is suffering in some kind of way mentally, spiritually, or physically and they're not able to be that same way they always were and they were a keynote in your Christmas celebration. A lot of people, especially if we live long enough, have experienced tremendous loss. And when you think about it, it's no real surprise that Christmas time would really shine a light on that loss. Maybe you, yourself, or someone you're really close to, is kind of engaging in this sense of, I'm excited about Christmas, but I'm also a little, eh. And maybe it has to do with loss. Maybe a lost job. It's really hard to provide a really fun Christmas with lots of presents under the tree if you've lost your job. Maybe it's been a lost marriage, lost dreams, lost hope. Or maybe you just feel like you've lost your way a little bit. And you know, I think God actually uses this to his advantage because the truth of the matter is the whole point of Christmas is that Jesus came. And you know why he came? to seek and to save the lost. It's the lost. That's who's on his mind. That's what drove him here to come to us. And so I think there's a very special opportunity around Christmas time when we're feeling this sense of loss. And I promise you in our household, there's some loss that we face every Christmas now. And I wish it weren't true, but it causes me to be more sensitive to others who are facing the same. And the reality is we have a hope to offer. That people who would never otherwise hear of the hope of Jesus Christ are suddenly maybe a little bit more tender and open to hearing. And so I hope that we as Christians who know this hope, I hope that we go ahead and we take advantage of the way that God's Spirit can sneak in to an otherwise pretty hardened heart where we don't face the disappointments and the loss the rest of the year. So it can actually be this opportune time. You know, it's funny because the whole Advent thing, it's something we've really um, embraced as a family with our own children, but I don't really remember even the word growing up. I don't know about you guys. It's just not something we really did I look back and I realize, well, we did do things to get us excited about Christmas, sure. Cookie baking and Christmas programs at school and stuff like that. But we never really called it Advent. So I actually looked up in the dictionary a few days ago, what does just the word Advent mean? Well, it means the coming in short, okay? But I think this is really funny. This is the Webster Dictionary definition of Advent. Advent. The arrival of a notable person, place, or event. And then this is the hilarious part. 
i.e., for example, the arrival of the television. <laughs> This, like, I'm literally like, no joke. It's early morning. The sun hasn't even rose. I'm in front of the Christmas tree with my coffee mug and fuzzy socks, and it's like the arrival of the television. <laughs> Does anyone even watch TV anymore? I, I know. Wow. Indeed, a notable person, or place, or event. But as Christians, we know that we celebrate. Not only the fact that he has come, because why would it be so important to celebrate something that just happened a long time ago? But Advent is the celebration of the coming. And so, as Christians, we celebrate. We're kind of in the land of the in between, where we look back and we celebrate what came. We're also simultaneously celebrating what is coming. Because the one who came, wrapped in flesh, and broke the silence of uh, the the earthly silence with his infant cry, is the same one who will come, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and bring his kingdom in its fullness forevermore. And that is where we'll live. So when we celebrate the fact that he has come. We're simultaneously celebrating the fact that he is coming, and you know what makes a perfect gift, really, when you think about it, it's knowing someone well enough to know what they actually want. You know what I mean? It's not just giving them what you would want. It's knowing someone well enough to know what. And if you're a really, really, really good gift giver, you can recognize what that person needs. That maybe they don't even know they're going to want, and boy, that's when you've hit the jackpot, right? If if I were to ask you guys to tell me what are some of your most memorable gifts that you've ever received, I think it would be so fun if we could all just sit around with a cup of coffee and and talk about that. Wouldn't it be so fun? It would also give away our ages. <laughs> For example, I started thinking about <laughs> what gifts I remember over the years. And the very first one that I remember just being like, just overwhelmed with joy, was my first Cabbage Patch Kid. Because I, I got a Cabbage Patch Kid earlier that year for my birthday, but my grandma made it, and she didn't understand that it needed to be like the real. Like she didn't, she didn't even put like the the emblem on the butt of the. So it was so embarrassing because people would say, "Oh, you've got a Cabbage Patch Kid," and I'm like, "Yeah, but I'd want to keep it at a distance so they didn't catch on it wasn't real." So when I got my real Cabbage Patch Kid, this was a very big deal. But as as the years progressed and I matured, you know, every teenage girl knows it all goes to clothes, and I still remember when I finally opened that ripped, stonewashed Levi Strauss. Jean jacket. It was the first and only time I remember wishing we could just get through the Christmas break so I could get back to school and bust it out. You know what I mean? I just have these visions of everyone asking me, "Where did you get that jacket?" You know what I mean? It's true. And there was another clothing item I remember opening, and I still remember the joy of getting it, because for a brief moment I thought I wasn't going to get it. It was fourth grade. 
And there was a sweatshirt that was very popular. Lots of people in my class were wearing it. It was Debbie Gibson on the front. Okay, it was a white crew neck sweatshirt. Debbie Gibson, and it was the cover of her Electric Blue album. And I just seethed with jealousy when girls would come to school with that shirt on. And deep down, I knew I was a bigger fan. I'm dead serious. And I just thought, this is just so unfair. So, it's the only thing I asked for for Christmas. On both sides of the family, both grandparents would ask me what I wanted. I told them the same thing. The Debbie Gibson crew neck sweatshirt with her album cover. I told them where you could get it. J.C. Penney's, Dillard's, so on and so forth. My mom said to me, Brandy, you really shouldn't tell both sides of the family the exact same thing because then that might be the only thing you get. And I'm like, but I'm more assured to get it. So guess what? I go to the Wilson family Christmas. I didn't get it. I thought, oh, no. I thought I made it clear. <laughs> then... I go to my own, wake up in the morning, open up my own gifts. I'm searching every gift that looks like it could be a shirt box. Nothing. I'm getting worried. Then we go to my grandma Judy's Christmas. She's the one that always gets it right, you know? And there it was, my Debbie Gibson sweatshirt. And I went to the bathroom and tried it on, and since it fit, I just kept it on <laughs> that whole day. I was hoping my aunts and uncles would ask me what my favorite song was, and then I could tell them and all these things. And then we go to my grandpa's, who lived in the same town, and there was only one gift under the tree. And I admit, I was a little disappointed when it was in the form of a shirt box, because I kind of knew, I'm going to get another Debbie Gibson sweatshirt. And sure enough, guess what it was? And my mom on the way home was like, I told you you shouldn't have told everyone that's what you wanted. I'm like, I don't care. I at least got the shirt. I still remember it so clearly. But every now and again, it's not only memorable when you receive a gift that you so badly wanted, but isn't it pretty memorable when you're the actual one that nailed it that year and gave someone something they really wanted? Have you ever, if I were to ask you to raise your hand, if you know you nailed it at least once, for someone, oh yes. See, this is the conversation I would like to have. Because chances are, whatever that gift was, there's a backstory. There's a reason why that gift may not be so special if you just tell us what the gift is. But if you know the backstory, then you'd be like, oh, that's a really cool gift. And I'm not trying to brag, but I kind of nailed it last year. Because last year, it was one of those years where it was just a really hard year for every reason you can imagine. I'm talking health, financial, grief, just you name it. Turns out this year hasn't been a ton different, but you know, there's more of those years the older you get, I guess. But this last year was tough. And there wasn't a lot of laughter and carefree and, and joy. And I was searching for that perfect gift for Neil. And I found it. I don't even know what led me to the Paramount website. I can only say that it was God-ordained. It must have been Holy Spirit-led because there on the Paramount Aurora website was Boys to Men Concert. <laughs> they 
we're going to come back together for this one to do a reunion tour. And they were going to be in our backyard, basically, for one night and one night only. And it wasn't until March, but I knew, oh my gosh, I nailed it. Because Neil's very favorite band back in college was Boys to Men. And, get this, my favorite band in high school was Boys to Men. So the two of us, our favorite band, going to the, oh, this was it. And it was everything I could do to keep it a secret. You can imagine how hard it was, and this is a true story, when we actually gathered as a family to go to uh, Starved Rock, and we were listening to 104.3 Throwback Jams, and all of a sudden Motown Philly comes on, and Neil and I are dancing, and it's literally almost coming out of my throat. We're going to go see them! You know, I just, it just was killing me. This is true, isn't it? It was killing me, but I kept it a secret, which is unlike me, and it made the whole experience so much better. But you know what else made that gift really neat and different? The sparks and the joy of opening that gift, and there was plenty of it, it didn't just fade 24 hours later, or a week later even. It was the kind of thing where... January through March, which we all know, <laughs> it's the dark cloud of the year. January through March, and we had plenty of sickness and dark days, metaphorically and literally. I'd be able to look at Neil on the worst days and go, but boys to men's one and a half months away. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? And then it was like five days away. Here's the thing. That gift was different because when he opened it, there's this backstory. He knew this is special. I didn't just go and find this at Walmart or Target or anywhere else that I might go shopping. This one took, this one took some intentional work. There was some thought behind this. This might not have meant anything to anybody else, but it meant a lot to us. And not only was it special for those reasons, but it gave us something to look forward to. It wasn't just a gift for that day. Something was going to be in the future, and it was going to be so special for us. And they did live up to our expectations, I might add. That's what this gift of Jesus is for us on such a grander scale. We don't sing, you know, silent night and joy to the world just because one day randomly a long time ago this baby was born. It wasn't just like this fun idea that popped in God's head. Well, life down there looks a little boring. Maybe I'll just throw him a gift, you know, in the form of a baby. And I'll give him something to celebrate a few years from now. That wasn't the idea. Because that gift, there's a backstory. Because that gift came in a time of great need and desperation because we as humans had a major major problem and I'm not going to be able to get into it a lot this morning but that problem was the effects of sin and how sin weighed on the heart of man and it separated us from God and last week Pastor Steve did a beautiful job talking about that. So if you weren't here last week, I really encourage you to get that backstory of what makes this Christmas and this gift and this promise of redemption so incredibly powerful.
In fact, there is one chapter kind of hidden in the Old Testament. It's one we don't often read, but it's from the book of Isaiah. And most of what we're going to talk about today comes from that Old Testament prophet book, Isaiah. Isaiah 59. It's a really long chapter, and because of the sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I can tell you this. God's people, the Israelites at the time, were experiencing major, major depression and oppression and all kinds of evil because of the fact that their sin and their rebellion and their decision to live apart from God and his ways separated them from God. And he chose to speak to that way back then through his prophet Isaiah. And in chapter 59, it just it's a cool chapter because it actually lays the whole thing out. You ever see one of those movies where it's like it's building up to the, to the climax and you see all the problem and then the climax is just kind of real quick or maybe it never even happens. You don't feel like it was wrapped up in a nice bow. Kind of leaves you just like, ugh, that's how it's going to end? Well, I love this chapter because it actually lays the whole thing out. The devastation of the problem. The first eight verses are all about the problem of sin. And then in the midsection, it goes directly to the consequences of the sin and the confession of the people that indeed that was the problem. And then, in the final handful of verses, it's God's promise and his response to the confession. And so I'm going to be paraphrasing a lot, and then we're going to really get into it at the very end. But we see that in the beginning, Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, we're going to look at that one specifically word for word, because it starts with this. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Now listen, it's really important that we understand that when it says, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, the arm of the Lord, anytime you hear that referenced in the Bible, it's always referring to God's might or power his abilities or capabilities because it represented to the Israelites the most mighty and powerful act he ever did, which was free them. Up until that point, it was free them from slavery, free them and deliver them from Egypt. And so it says, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he delivered us from Egypt, which represented Slavery. So any other time that you see that weird phrase, arm of the Lord, it's talking about God's power and his willingness to use that power on behalf of his children. And so it opens right up. Surely that can't be the problem. They know they're in, des they're in a desolate place. Okay, they know they're in despair and they're thinking, basically they're referring to the arm of the Lord because they know God's capable but yet they're still in this oppression. So surely the arm is not too short. And then he says, Isaiah says, but your iniquities have separated you from God. It's your sins that have hidden his face and his ear from you. Now, was his face really hidden? This was typically a, a metaphorical way of saying we don't feel like our prayers are being heard. 
Ever feel like your prayers aren't being heard? But see, they're able to identify at this point through this prophecy that it is one reason and only one reason that they're suffering in this way. And it's their iniquities. It's their sin. And in fact, the same thing that separated people all those years ago, in fact, to go all the way back to the garden in Genesis, the only thing that ever, ever, ever separated God's children from him is their sin. And the only thing that separates him from us today is the same thing. It's our sin. So if you're asking yourself because, because you don't feel that you're under the protective covering of God, if you feel that you're distanced from him or you feel like you're living in this place of oppression and depression and all of these things, the question is not, does he care? Is he able? There's only one thing that separates us and it's our sin. And if we can't start from there, we are in denial and we will not get any closer. It was never that God didn't care. It was never that he wasn't able. But he couldn't diagnose a problem that no one was willing to admit any more than a doctor's going to help you if you don't go tell them what the actual problem is. We can't fix it if we can't admit the problem. And it's interesting because if you go on to read the next handful of verses, it details all of the ways that these people had sinned against God. And basically the general thing is it talks about their lips. Basically the things they said, the things they talked about were not the things of God. And then it talks about the ways they thought, the schemes, the thoughts of man were not of God. And then it talks about, lo and behold, their actions, right? The way we think is the way we speak is the way we act. Basically all of those things went away from God. And you know what I find? Sin looks pretty much the same way today, doesn't it? We can tell when we're away from God by what we say, certainly by our thoughts, and easily by our actions. We all have a bent away from God because of this sin problem. It's true. It's all of us. In fact, the Bible says that so that none of us have to feel particularly bad, I guess. Romans 3.23 most of us know this verse if you've been around church at all. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that latter half of that verse really stuck out to me this week. I, I was just really thinking on that. Not only have we sinned, I'm pretty aware of that, but sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because I started thinking, well, what's the glory of God? Well, glory is simply God's nature. It's his essence. It's who he is. And if you know anything about him, you'll find all over scripture, it's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's forgiveness, it's light, okay? It's truth, it's justice, it's righteousness, it's protection, it's all these things. And so when we are short of glory, well, what does a glory shortage look like? You ever thought about that? What's a glory shortage look like? If we're short of the glory of God, then it's going to look like less than those things. And that's what it was looking like for these Israelites. They go on to detail what that glory shortage looked like for them. It looked like oppression, 
lostness, darkness, having no direction. You know, when you have no direction in life, that is a huge source of pain. It looked like stumbling and struggling. It looked like no justice, no truth. It describes people as groping, stumbling, and blind, and like the dead. That is what the short edge of glory looks like. But the glory of God looks like the exact opposite of all those things. It looks like joy, being found, walking in the light. It, it, it administers justice and it speaks with truth and you have sight and you're fully alive. That's the glory of God. See, they were living under all this shortness of glory of God and it was because of sin and we all have that problem. But what do we do with that problem? I, I remember, maybe if some of you have gone through the, the, the privilege of becoming a parent, maybe you can relate to this feeling of the first time you have your own child. And I'll never forget when we had our first daughter. And I'm telling you, I was convinced she was perfect. Convinced of it. I could not. I had an idea in my mind of what she would be like. But it was just better than that for a while, you know. And then, as it turns out, she was one of those strong-willed types, and it started becoming pretty obvious around the typical 18 months of age, you know. And, of course, then it's the no and the mine and all these things. And everything got really complicated at age three. You know, I think it's the terrible threes, not twos. Everything got complicated at age three because she had a serious case of what I'll call the me-do-its. Because all I remember about her at age three was the constant tantrum throwing, pushing me away, and insisting, me do it. I'm talking buckles in the car. Yeah, I got some moms going, yes, yes, high five over here. Because it was like, oh, we couldn't leave the parking lot because of me do it. And I'd try to get to her and she's kicking me out. Okay, you do it. The, the putting on her own shoes and okay, that's going to take 18 hours. For us to get out the door. Moms, am I speaking here? The case of the me-do-its. There's literally nothing more frustrating. No, there is something more frustrating. When this one is totally incapable of doing it. And they're insisting me do it. And you're just watching them flail to do a task you good well know they can't do. I'm sitting here thinking, you are never, ever, if I offered you a million dollars, ever going to get those buckles on. It's never going to happen. But sometimes, even, even though I'm much, much larger and smarter and wiser than she, something about this flailing, I'm not getting in that. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like, okay, I guess I'm just going to have to wait till you kind of get out of that. And I tell you what, there was nothing more relieving to me as a mom than when she would flip from the tantrum, me do it, to the finally, mommy do it. Okay, great. Now we can get somewhere. On a much larger scale, though, we have the same problem, don't we? We have a case of the me-do-its. We want to fix all the problems that are actually just a result of sin that no one can fix. No one. 
except Jesus Christ. We can search our whole lives. We can spend a lot of money, a lot of self-care, a lot of therapy, therapy, retail therapy, healthy food, vacations, whatever you want to do to try to fix all the problems that have occurred as a result of the sin. But until we address the sin itself, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And here's God. He's the ultimate father. He's got the answer, and he's just waiting until you stop throwing a fit, insisting me do it. And guess what happens when we finally just give it up and confess? He's the dad that just crushes right in. He's been dying for you to say, you do it, daddy. Can't do it. He's dying for you to say. And we see examples in Scripture all over the place that that is, in fact, his response. My favorite one, because I love stories and visuals, is is the prodigal son. I mean, it just doesn't get more like visual. and It's a father that's pictured as literally running toward his son the minute his son acknowledges he can't do it. He doesn't want to live under or out from the protective covering of that glory of God. And the minute he takes one look toward his dad to say it, his dad's already rushing in. And our God is the same way. Because not only do we have a sin problem, and he knows that. He knows we're made of dust. He's not surprised. He's not disgusted. It's the very reason that he came. But he does need us to confess it because confession is what makes the way back. We cannot skip the confession. And we know this in our personal relationships, don't we? If someone has wronged you, there is just about nothing more annoying than when they try to just like after a while kind of come back in your life and just pick up right where you left off without that little piece of acknowledging that they wronged you. I'm sorry, but we know this. Reconciliation does not occur without ownership of how you have wronged this person. And we have all wronged our maker and our, with our decision to go our own way. But all we have to do is confess. And we see it right here in Isaiah 59 where the minute they confess, and it's really cool because at first Isaiah starts by addressing sin. But when it moves into the next handful of verses and it starts talking about the confession, he's no longer saying your iniquity. He's including himself. Even the prophet Isaiah is now saying our sin. See, it's, it's really easy sometimes to recognize other people's sins, isn't it? But the key is that I own my own. God is not interested on my take on someone else's sin. He knows what drove them to that point, and he has tremendous sympathy for whatever it is in their life that caused them to go in that particular direction. I don't have that same sympathy because I didn't walk in their shoes. But I'm so thankful that I have a God that knows the things that have plagued me my whole life, and he knows why these are certain ways that I bend away from him. All that stands in between us coming back together is that confession. And so let me just say this. If you are someone right now, just right now, who you know that you are in sin, you know that you have rebelled against God in some way, shape, or form, he knows it too. Denial isn't going to help you. 
It's just going to prolong this, this separated glory shortness kind of living. And it's not what God wants for you. He wants you to be fully alive, fully experiencing his glorious life for you. And so if you're sitting here and you're just aware of a sin, guess what? I love when uh, Neil said a couple weeks ago, it really stuck out to me. He said that the Holy Spirit always works to pull us near to God. And I thought that was interesting because while I do technically believe that, I realized when he said it, what is it that's twinging in me when he says that? And I realized it's because if you were to ask me what the work of the Holy Spirit is, I could tell you the answers that I, I, I would refer to some scriptures that talk about sanctification or guaranteeing us a spot in heaven or something like that. But what do I really believe the Holy Spirit does? Really? For real, I just believe that it convicts me of my wrongdoings. And in part, it does. But the problem is when I think of the word convict, I typically think of it in a negative connotation. Convict, therefore, I'm a bad person. But no, convict because that sin is keeping me away from God and he wants me to come back. So listen, if you're sitting here convicted of a sin today, that doesn't mean you're further from God because you're aware of it. You could actually be much closer than you were with the confession. The confession brings us back. And, and so we move on because what we see directly after the confession, it's so cool if you were able to take the time to read this chapter on your own, and I so suggest that you do. I went with a highlighter and I just started highlighting every active verb that it says directly after the confession in, in terms of what God did. And these are the verbs. It says, God looked at our desperate state and he saw. This isn't a person that's just looking at you. This is a person that sees to the heart. God looked and he saw and he was appalled at the injustice. And then what does it say in verse 16? It's like we come right back around. It says, so his arm achieved salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. So here we see, it was never that his arm was too short, right? It's that he needed the confession and the confession gave way for his mighty arm and outstretched hand to save us from the oppression of the slavery of sin that we live in. So confession opens that door for his mighty work of salvation, wholeness, completeness to work inside of us. It then says, it tells us how he did it. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. And any of you who have ever read Ephesians, this should sound familiar. So his own arm worked salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation as his head. As it turns out, that whole armor of God thing, we're not the ones that are using it for the first time. This is a hand-me-down outfit, basically. It's not our armor. It's the armor of God. This is his armor. And when he sees that we're under a state of temptation and oppression and devil, the devil's schemes, this is what he gives us to take the stand. Okay, here you go. Here's my armor. And we get to put it on any time we're willing. And I wish we had time to talk more about the armor of God. It's one of my very favorite things to really think on. And it's an even better thing to actually use, you know. 
But we see this is how he smashed and crushed oppression, slavery, and sin way back then. And today, it's still how he does it. And he's given us the secret. He's given us the outfit. He's given us the power to do the same. That's the promise that comes along with this confession. And he's happy to make it. In fact, here's the most beautiful part of all. I practically was running to church this morning to tell you guys just this part. Verse 19 and 20. It's amazing because now there's this confession and now God enters with this promise and it says, From the West, people will fear or revere him. And from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. I have literally stared at that verse over and over and over again because I knew there was some rich stuff there. And I hope it lands on you as richly as I feel he impressed it on me. But when it says, from the West, you know what? When we talk about people like out West, what are we really saying? People really far away. Guess what metaphorically it means in the Bible? Same exact thing. People really far away. This wasn't going to be for just the Israelites. This was going to be people really far away. And what's interesting is it says, people from the West will revere him. And from the rising of the sun, they will revere his what? His glory. Remember, all had sinned and fallen short of glory. And now, people will get to experience his glory. And, and what is it that causes people to not be able to experience his glory and then all of a sudden experience his glory? And what is this thing about talking about people really far away? I think it's interesting that it says people from the West. Because when we know this famous story about the Magi, you know, they were the first, by the way, non-Israelites to come and worship the king. I don't think that's an accident. And, and do you remember where the Magi came from? Most people have heard this. The Magi came from the where? East. Okay? So then I'm thinking, okay, the Magi, the first people, Magi, they came from the East. You're saying people from the West, far off. Okay, how far is the East from the West? What scope does that cover? And then all of a sudden, if you've been in church for a while at all, all of a sudden, these bells started ringing for me about another pretty popular passage about the east from the west. Back in Psalm. Remember this one? As far as the east is from the west, so far to infinity, to every corner of the world, to all people, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions, our iniquities from us. Whoa. Whoa. Because guess what? Those iniquities, those sins, are the only thing separating us from the glory of God. 
as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And I think it's so neat because I actually did a little bit of study on the whole magi following the star. And it, it, it kind of bummed me out because I do have this picture. You know, I've heard the story my whole life. So I have this picture of the star, you know. It's a star on the tree and star and everything else. And actually, when you study it, it probably wasn't a star. How's that for a bummer? But, but it's, even, it's even cooler because as it turns out, most likely, instead of this being like a star, it was an alignment of the stars, a certain pattern in the cosmos where they knew this doesn't happen. It's like the supernova experience or something like this. And they knew something was happening because the alignment of the stars was different than anything they'd ever seen. And guess when you will most likely see this particular type of alignment? Right before daybreaks. That is most likely when these guys saw this alignment of the stars. And all of a sudden, I think about phrases we use all the time. Things like, when all the stars align. And that's kind of our way of saying it was like the perfect timing. And indeed, all the stars aligned. And it was the perfect timing. And when he comes again, even though we ache for it, we ache for everything to be right. But you know what? He doesn't want to rush it because there are still some people that are far off that don't know him. And he's patient and he's calling on them, and he's asking us to be the light. Because I think about this, and I think about the fact that it says, from the rising of the sun, S-U-N, and I think, rising of the sun, S-O-N. The light came in and pierced the darkness. And then in verse 20, best part of all, and we're going to wrap it up so if the uh, team wants to come, it talks about the Redeemer coming to Zion. It says the Redeemer will come to Zion to those who repent of their sins. The coolest thing of all is that this word Redeemer carries so much weight for us. And it's my hope that in wrapping it up by explaining this whole Redeemer thing to you, that if you are someone that's experiencing loss, maybe you don't have a lot of money and you're dreading shopping for Christmas. Maybe your calendar is exploding and you're already exhausted just thinking about leaving this building in a few minutes. It's my hope that in understanding what this whole Redeemer thing will come to us means that that childhood Christmas nostalgia where you hoped for that perfect gift and you were so excited and you'd go to bed on Christmas Eve night just hoping you were going to open that perfect gift. Guess what? We have the perfect gift giver. He calls himself the Redeemer. And it's my hope that when we understand this, that nostalgia will return because you will realize that you not only had the perf perfect gift giver, but he saw to your actual need and desires. And he came into our mess and he rescued us. He redeemed us. It says he's the redeemer. And you know what? The Hebrew word for that was goel. G-O-E-L. And what it really means is kinsman redeemer. And in the Israelites, back, back in the uh, Israelite history, the kinsman redeemer was known as the family member who would go and buy one of their family members out of slavery. Now, they had to have enough money to do that. You know, there's that family member in a desperate situation. You want to be able to help, but sometimes you just don't have the resources. 
It had to be somebody that had the resources to buy this family member back and want to. <laughs> Not everybody wants to bring their family that much closer, just saying. The kinsman redeemer had to see and know that their family member was in trouble had to have the resources and the desire and the will and the strength to go and pursue that family member and buy them back. And that person in slavery had to be willing to go. And do you know, there were times that that person in slavery didn't. Because where they were, it was bad, but it was familiar. It was known. So this kinsman redeemer would go and buy this family member who was in slavery back. And then he would bring him back to his land, a land that was free and a land that was protected. And no one was ever able to buy that person back out again unless, of course, by free will because now that slave is free. They choose to go on their own. And some would. And that kinsman redeemer knew when he spent all this money and all these travels and all this time and all this effort to buy this person back that this person could, now that they were free, think maybe I've got a better way and I'll go find my way on my own. This kinsman redeemer would know that that was the risk. So when God says in verse 20, the Redeemer will come to Zion, which referenced the place of God, the place where God's glory was manifested over and over again in the Bible. It was a physical place, Mount Zion. It was also a metaphorical experience of God's glory. It's kind of like when I refer to my grandma's house. There's a typical location and an address where she lived, but really when I describe going to my grandma's, I'm describing more of an essence of grandma's house. That's what Zion refers to when we see it in the Bible. And so it says the kinsman redeemer would go and it would buy back the family members in slavery and bring them back. And this is for all who repent of their sins. And so when God, who was already fit and qualified in his perfection and deity to be the Redeemer, came wrapped in flesh, starting his human experience as an embryo, breaking his silence with the underdeveloped cry of that of an infant, and going on to live a perfect, sinless life, a life that never, ever said no to the nudging of the Holy Spirit. When he did that, when he did that, he became our kinsman. This human experience is what qualified him to be our kinsman, redeemer. And so I tell you what, when we sing these songs about Jesus being born, we need to remember, for unto us, Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And if we accept this gift, he promises his spirit, which he says will never, ever, ever depart from us. And that spirit 
will carry us safely home into the land of our Redeemer where every tear will be wiped from our eye and there will be no shortage of the glory of God. Now that is a perfect gift, isn't it?